This podcast includes adult language and themes. It also contains descriptions about sexual violence. Please be advised. Previously on She Says. I'm calling to tell you that there has been a change in this offender's status. If you think, you know, you're fearful when you're an anonymous, now he knows my name. He saw me in court. We made eye contact. If you have any concerns about your immediate safety, contact your local law enforcement agency. My biggest fear right now is just safety, but also the case. Because to hear what we'll be going through, all of the files, I just thought to myself, Jesus, good luck with that. Being afraid is one thing. Being alone and afraid? Well, that's a whole other category of fear. Especially when you're on a road like the one we're watching Linda go down. It's dark. She's traveling all by herself. She can't see anything except for the small steps she's about to take in front of her. But I've really worked hard through therapy and things to be able to leave the house. Because initially, I couldn't even leave the house. The only time I left was when I was forced to, like, to go to one of the kids' school functions, stuff like that. You know, we started ordering groceries versus me going to the grocery store because, you know, I was just constantly... And if I would see someone that just vaguely looked like him, you know, I, I was just terrified. Now, it's April 2018. And a lot has happened over the past three years. She's identified the man she believes to be her attacker through a Google search. He came back as a DNA match. He was arrested. He posted bail. I did not know him until um, um, uh, the night of uh, June 29, 2015, um, which he sexually assaulted me. In 2015? Yes, sir. Yes, Your Honor. All right, so why are you filing the complaint against him now? Her anxieties are bubbling to the surface with the release of this suspect, but she knows one thing. Her family can't go back to living the way it did in 2015. They can't endure living in constant fear again. And that was me knowing that he didn't know my name or where I lived or anything about me. Mm -hmm. And that took a really long time, and it never fully went away. The fear of her family's safety weighs on her mind. The family even came up with a strategy if this man were to ever show up at the house. Linda, Linda's husband, and their children all know where to position themselves if someone tried to get in. This safety plan includes both parents being armed. Linda worries she'll project her anxieties onto her children. She's scared that she won't be able to hold it all together. There's a lot of pressure on the family right now. Her husband feels it too. You know, things will never be the same. They're either going to be better or they're, this will impact us as a family and as individuals and as a couple. And uh, I'm not, not going to do everything I can to not let that happen. And it's really hard to put that away and smile for Easter bunnies and birthdays and graduations and proms and fifth grade graduations and driver's license getting, I mean, you know. And these fears are exacerbated by something that's hard for Linda to see at times. She's not alone. There are loving and concerned eyes watching her from the side streets of the winding road. There are caring arms that reach out when she stumbles and needs help. There are soft words of encouragement being whispered from the shadows when she picks the right path 
In some ways, Linda is lucky. Not everyone on this journey has this kind of love. Those supporting her, well, they have a lot to say. In this episode, we turn to those who have been bearing witness to Linda's journey since the day of her assault over three years ago. From WFAE in Charlotte, I'm Sarah Delia. This is She Says. Watching someone you love figure out what life should look like after a traumatic event has happened is a little like when someone you love has a full-on car breakdown. You're not a mechanic. You don't even know how to change a tire or where to start to fix the problem. All you can do is stand by them and listen as you wait for help or AAA to come. That's what Linda's sister has done for the past three years, and it hasn't been easy. When Linda told me how you wanted to hear what it's like for family members to go through this, I felt like in some ways I don't know the answer to that because it's been three years that have I even totally processed it. Mm. In some ways, I don't know. I've known Linda for over a year now, and periodically she'll bring up her sister. Whenever she does, it's always in this very loving way. She clearly respects and admires her sister. Linda describes her as the responsible older sibling. She's the sister she turns to when she's needed help or advice. Linda's sister is four years older than her and owns a small business in Charleston, South Carolina. We aren't naming her to maintain Linda's anonymity. Linda's sister is not listening to the podcast. She's just not ready, she says. But her husband has listened to at least the first episode and has shared its contents with her. When Linda mentions she's going out of town, I just assume it's to see her sister. That's how frequently they visit. So Linda will make the drive to Charleston to see her and the beach. Her sister says the beach has always been a sanctuary for Linda. Almost every single time she will take several hours to herself and just go to the beach. That's always been her refuge. She always says that she loves to look out to the ocean and see no land. I guess it's that whole idea of realizing that, you know, you're a small piece in this huge universe. There's something kind of peaceful about that. Linda's sister says they had a typical big sister, little sister relationship growing up. She was the responsible firstborn, always looking out for her baby sister. She says with a smile in her voice that Linda always made people laugh and was the center of attention. Linda's sister is usually the one who gets the phone call from Linda when something is wrong. She was one of the first Linda called from the hospital after her assault. I actually was at my parents' house in North Carolina. I got the call from her and, I mean, she was already, like, crying and upset. And I don't even remember the first thing she said. But I just remember listening to her and she was sobbing and... You know, I, I just remember my heart breaking, but it's also like it's hard to process. You're immediately thinking, what are the next steps? You know, I have to get to her. Like, what are, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, but after I took that call, I, I don't remember exactly, but I probably told my husband first um, and then went upstairs to where my parents were and told them that day we went, you know, down to Charlotte to be with her and ended up bringing her to my parents' home, um, which is outside of Charlotte, where she just felt safer. You got this horrible news, and then you had to share that with your parents. Do you remember, like, how you explained it to them or or how that went at all? I think the first thing I said is, she's okay. 
even though like she wasn't, but I didn't want them to go to the worst case scenario. Like she's a, she's alive, but this is what happened. Just like most people, it's just such shocking news. You, how do you process that? I mean, you just, it just hits you, you know, you, you kind of feel stunned, you feel devastated, you feel horrified. And then I think you also step into action. Like, what can we do to make this better? What can we do to be there for her? Yeah. Did you feel like you were kind of had a good sense of what was going on in the investigation from like what she was sharing with you? Yeah, she kept me up to date on all of that. The whole process has been a nightmare. And um, it's been interesting because, you know, everybody deals with tragedy in different ways. And the way Linda has dealt with it is to really dive in. And it's one of her top purposes in life is to get justice, not only for herself, but for others. There there were times where it was difficult for me because it almost seemed like her life was suddenly completely defined by this horrible incident. And I, on the other hand, wanted to process it best you can and not move on, but don't let it define who she is. But over time, I've kind of realized that I think she had no choice but to plow forward and really get justice and then also devote her time to helping others who are in similar situations. In terms of our communication, there's been times when, you know, she's telling me, you know, these things and these updates, and she can talk about it for a long, long period of time. Um, and I just have to tell her, okay, I, I need to stop now. Like, I can't. I, I want to know and I want to be supportive, but I can only handle it in small chunks. Yeah. And she's respected that as well. So it's been an interesting process of learning how different people handle the same situation. I mean, did you ever think, like, maybe she should just let this go because that's, like, the healthier choice? Or did that thought ever cross your mind? Well, it crossed my mind. I don't know that I ever thought that was the right thing, but it crossed my mind. Because you kind of have to relive the moment over and over and over and over again. It was something, you know, that I just kind of, it was an internal thought process. But um, I never, you know, vocalized that to her because at the end of the day, I know her well enough to know that she wasn't going to stop and that this had become her mission. And over time, I was able to see that as awful as all of this is, in some ways, it's, I see an empowered version of her that I haven't seen in the past, that she has really kind of risen up from that moment and found incredible strength. When she shared that she had been recording the police, what was your reaction to that? But I don't think the point was ever to tear down the police or to to point blank blame them is just to say, this is what's happening. This is what should be happening. And it's not, there's a disconnect here. And how can we fix that? It's just, I don't think her intention was ever to make them look bad so much as to say, there needs to be some more education here. We need to reevaluate this process. This is why women don't follow through with this because it's just 
too difficult. Linda's sister says one of the most devastating parts of Linda's story is the mysterious CODIS hit and the confusion over the DNA evidence in her case. When police told Linda she had misidentified her assailant, only to have them go after him in the summer of 2017, over two years after her assault. I think the most shocking thing has been um, the whole issue with the DNA kit and them telling her it wasn't him. And then, oh, guess what it is? <laughs> to put a victim through that is just cruel. I mean, it's just awful. That can't continue. Like something has to be done. You know, it's these women have been through something and, and, and sometimes men, you know, have been through these horrific events and to be put through a scenario where basically, you know, based on a mistake, you're telling them what they know to be true is false. I can't imagine how she must have felt and she didn't deserve to go through that. Linda's sister also found it to be a little difficult when Linda decided to bring her story to a reporter. I was worried about it at first. Part of it was wondering how the rest of the family would react. Um, our mom is is a very private person where Linda, I'm sure you've noticed, is a very open and transparent person. What's right for Linda isn't necessarily right for the rest of the family, but ultimately it's, you know, it's Linda's call. So, you know, I was worried about that, like how it would affect you know, the family dynamics, but mostly I was just worried that wondering if there's any reason it would backfire with the case, especially with the investigation. I think that fear was short-lived and now more than anything, I'm, I'm just so proud of her. I think she did the right thing. After the suspect in Linda's case had posted bail and been released, Linda and her husband decided to make a safety plan for her home and family. Casey ever showed up. They also had to disclose to their children what the man looked like in case they ever saw him in person. And they asked for their neighborhood to regularly be patrolled by the local police. Kim Dupuis with Brave Step, a Charlotte nonprofit that supports sexual assault survivors and their family members, says the fear a sexual assault survivor feels is a real palpable thing. And it can grow when treatment isn't sought out. To be honest, I think that fear is there regardless if the assailant is, you know, arrested, found in jail, tried or not, or never found. Um, There's this change in the way you view the world. You become hypervigilant. You now look at everybody in every situation as, you know, how do I manage this? What if? How am I safe? Who do I have near me in case? And so it really changes your view of the world if you're not... You know, really, what's um, the word I'm looking for, progressive in seeking out your own care and utilizing those help, healthy coping mechanisms. She says Brave Step offers counseling support for family members of survivors. You can have secondhand trauma. Um, you don't have to be the person that experienced it yourself, but when it is your family member or close friend or loved one, wife, spouse, um, you become, you know, affected by that trauma as well. And so I do feel like it's critical for them to also have the options for treatment and support services. Linda's family isn't immune to the secondhand trauma, says her husband. It is emotional for the kids. They do feel the stress. Her PTSD, she doesn't announce it. I'm having PTSD sometimes, so we don't know when she's acting a certain way, how she's feeling, where she's at. So there's a lot of 
tiptoeing around. But there isn't anybody in the house that, that doesn't care. Linda's children don't have all the details about her attack, but they are all aware it was a sexual assault. Linda's husband said recently one of their sons was playing with friends near a creek by their house. They saw a strange person in the woods. I went with him back there um, to, just to check. And one of the things that he said was he was concerned that he was going to be kidnapped or, and or raped. That's the first time I've heard him say anything like that. There was someone out there, he says, but it was just someone minding their own business, hanging out by the water. He decided his son needed to see there wasn't anything to worry about, so he took both of his sons out to the creek. Went right up to up to the area, and we understand you've got to you've got to make a decision. You've got to let it go. So it was kind of like a, a lengthy conversation, which was pretty much what I've been trying to do, <laughs> teaching my son what I'm trying to do. Hmm. Yeah, you can't let if you if you let the fear of the unknown and the helplessness, helplessness that you feel um, as you watch your, your wife go through this and your, your family, um, it could, I don't know how people do it. Well, you're doing it. It's been very challenging. Um, I'm doing the best I can, but I still feel um, I, could, I, I should be doing more. Part of the reasoning behind the family safety plan, which includes firearms in the household, is that it does give them a little power back, he says. He already had a handgun and would show Linda how to handle a shotgun. That part of the safety plan is complicated for Linda's sister. I don't like the idea of having a gun in a home. It's just my personal thing, particularly when risk of depression and and a lot of anxiety. I don't like the idea of a gun in a house. But with that said, if I were in her shoes, I would consider it. I understand why she's frightened. I'm frightened. It's smart to have a plan, whether it involves guns or not. And, you know, do what it takes to, to make yourself feel safe and your family. Remember, Linda's sister is not listening to the podcast right now. It's her husband who heard the first episode. He shared the gist of it with her. From that first episode of the podcast, there was something Linda's sister learned about the assault. She didn't realize her sister was seeking drugs that night. I didn't know that. And um, I was really upset when I found that out. What was most upsetting is that the nature of our relationship has always just been so raw and so honest. And um, and I felt like she could always come to me and know that there wouldn't be judgment. I understood why she didn't want to tell me that right away, but I didn't realize I didn't understand why she waited three years and then let me find out in such a public, you know, on a public forum, you know. Yeah. But we've talked through it. You know, it's okay. Were there ever parts where you found yourself, you know, just accidentally? judging a little bit and you had to kind of readjust or or reassess or did that not happen at all? Well, the original story was that, you know, because she wasn't upfront about the the drugs initially, was that he had offered to give her a ride home. Mm. And I mean, my first reaction was thinking, you know, that, that I don't care what she did. No one deserves to have what happened to her happen. Finger pointing or it, it just, it, it infuriates me. So, no, in terms of judgment, like, 
no, it, it wasn't there. But in terms of the, oh, man, why did you do that? Things may have been different if you hadn't have done that. That's there. And to me, that's different. One of the hard things about telling Linda's story is that so many people want to know things about her. And mm -hmm. because, you know, we want to respect and maintain her anonymity, it's it's really hard to kind of paint a full picture of who she is as a person. And mm -hmm. so I was just wondering from like your point of view as her sister, is there anything that you think like if you wish that like you could share something about what Linda is like as a person to listeners? Like what would that be if you could share something? Probably what you're not going to get is just how charming and charismatic and brilliant she is. She was the one that was always the center of attention, could make people laugh. She has an ability to talk to any person, anybody, it doesn't matter what your social status is, economic status. She she just has a way of bringing people in. And um, she's funny, she's passionate, and she's strong as hell. She's just a really special person. And I don't know that she knows that. What does justice look like for Linda? Him being prosecuted and found guilty and put away is is one element of justice. But I think ultimately she has a bigger picture than that. And it's justice that women will be heard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry. No, it actually okay. kind of makes me want to cry, but um, it's just, it's more than about her. I think, I think it's a much bigger picture of justice. That was Linda's sister reflecting on what the past three years have been like for Linda's family. Coming up, we hear what happens when another they speaks up to help a victim get results. The they in this case should be familiar. It's you, the public. I'm Sarah D'Elia. This is She Says. Hi, She Says listeners. We want to give you a special heads up. The She Says podcast will be coming live on stage in Charlotte, North Carolina for an important public conversation event. And that includes you. We're hosting a special panel conversation in public forum, Beyond She Says, Sexual Assault in Charlotte. I'll be joining Charlotte Talks host Mike Collins, along with a panel of law enforcement officials and victims' rights advocates. We'll be discussing the podcast, how sexual assault cases are investigated, talk about what victims go through, and explore whether justice is really being served. You'll have a chance to ask questions and make comments. Join us Thursday evening, August 2nd from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at Spirit Square's McLowan Theater in Uptown Charlotte for this free event. Registration is available at wfae.org. Follow us on social media for more updates. Hope to see you there. Support for She Says comes from WFAE members and Contemplative Rebellion, a peace and justice jewelry shop offering handmade, socially conscious jewelry, supporting various charitable organizations such as Women for Women International on the web at contemplativerebellion.com. Additional support is provided by the Knight Foundation. When Linda had questions about how her case was being handled and wasn't feeling particularly heard by the police, she reached out to the media. In the case of Leah McGurk, a Charlotte woman who was the victim of a crime, when she felt like she wasn't being heard by the police, 
she took to the internet to make her story public. I tried to file a police report in downtown Charlotte, but the officer refused to let me file, stating that I would need to return to the scene of the crime and call 911 from there. This audio is from a YouTube video the 31-year-old posted on May 28, 2018. She's sitting on a wicker chair and looking directly into the camera. In the video, she recounts her attempt to file a police report after she was drugged at Rooftop 210, a bar in Uptown Charlotte. To back up for a second, Leah says she was roofied on Saturday, May 12, 2018, while she was having a girls' night out. She remembers trying to make her way up to the U-shaped bar that night. It was a packed room with people on either side of her. She ordered one drink, a tequila, water, and lime cocktail. I was holding my cup in my right hand, but I set it down on the counter right in front of me so that I could dig through my bag. So I find my wallet, stick my uh, card in there, and, um, and then I take a drink from my cup and I leave. So my cup was in front of me the whole time, but there were people all around me. Drink in hand, she went to meet her friends. Everything was fine until she got about two-thirds in. Something didn't feel right. I was there for maybe 20 to 30 minutes before I started to feel kind of woozy. My vision started to go out, like it was starting to get really spotty. I don't know if anyone has ever felt faint before, but it's that thing where... You know, all of a sudden, all of these black spots just start to take up your vision. And um, I also heard like this weird hissing or like popping sound in my ears. And um, if you're not familiar with that venue, they don't really have chairs there. They have some, but not very many. It's more of a standing style bar. I saw this metal column to my right and I braced my back up against it and my vision went completely out at this point, but I was still conscious, so I just let myself sort of slide down the middle column. I was sort of in a crouching position, and if anyone has ever done yoga and they're familiar with uh, malasana, it's like the squatting pose, that's basically what I was in. Her friends were concerned. They thought that maybe she was having a seizure or hadn't eaten enough that night. But Leah says she doesn't have a history of seizures and she made sure to eat something before she headed out that night. Her friends tried to get her out of the bar as quickly as they could. Another friend picked her up and stayed with her. She recalls having a horrible headache and feeling like she was awake, yet unable to hear or comprehend what her friend was saying. She says she spent the next several days recovering and in denial about what had happened. She decided she needed to warn others about her experience, so she took to the internet and posted the details of what happened that night. Very quickly, she started getting private messages from women and men saying they also believed they were roofied at Rooftop 210. Leah, it turns out, was somewhat lucky. Some of the individuals who were contacting her said they were roofied and had also been sexually assaulted. So on Friday, May 25th, 13 days after her experience at Rooftop 210, she decided to call 311, the city's information number, to find out how she could file a police report. She wasn't in immediate danger, so she didn't want to call 911. The person she was connected to instructed her to go to the police station to file the report in person. Okay, she thought, that's what I'll do. It was a Friday night, and she headed to CMPD headquarters in Uptown. So I go up to um, the main desk there. I believe they call it the Rotunda. 
The male officer made eye contact with me, so I walked over to him, and he said, so you're here to report some sort of a crime? And I said, yes, um, the fact that I was roofied two weeks ago. And he said, why did you wait two weeks? And immediately I thought, oh my God. This is really happening right now. You hear about these things. This is every assault victim's worst nightmare. And it's happening right now. So I said, well, guess I was in shock and, you know, feeling ashamed. And he said, why were you ashamed? Were you raped? It's like very aggressive and like hostile. And I said, no. As I stated before, I wasn't raped. I was roofied, and I would like to file a report about that. She says the officer told her if she wanted to file a police report, she would have to go back to the scene of the crime and call 911. She asked if that was normal. She was standing at the police station. Why did she have to leave? Then he gave me some lame excuse, but he couldn't give me a valid reason for why I needed to go to um, the scene of the crime. And so I said to him, does that apply in cases of sexual assault as well? Because at this point, I'm like, let me get all the information here. This is just bizarre because I had already called 311 and they never told me this. And he said, oh, well, yeah, I mean, you need to be in the area where the crime occurred in order to file the report and just mumbled something. And I said, wow, I can see why sexual assault survivors don't report the crimes committed against them if they have to go back to the scene. She says she thanked him for his time and left. By this point, she says she had also reached out to Rooftop 210 to talk to them about improving their security practices. She says no one would take her seriously. That's when she decided to post a video on YouTube. Something has to change. These responses are unacceptable for victims of these crimes. She says a day after she posted the video, she got a call from an unknown number. And I pick up. It's a detective from the CMPD. And he said, you know, someone in our department saw your YouTube video. They wanted me to reach out to you regarding filing your report. So I said, okay, yeah, I mean, I want to file a report. He said, great, when can you come in to do it? So... I set up an appointment with him for Wednesday the next day. This time, she brought backup. Her sister came with her. It was a fairly straightforward process. The detective said he would let her know what he found as things progressed. That brings us to Friday, June 1st. She got a call from the detective working her case. CMPD was going to hold a press conference that afternoon about the police report debacle. Going to go in a kind of a, an unconventional direction uh, this afternoon. Uh, I, most of you know why we're, we're here. Most of you are intimately familiar with the incident that uh, we're. That's Rob Tavano, uh, the director of public affairs for CMPD. Uh, the way that uh, it's been communicated is that the uh, the officer told her, "Well, I ain't taking a report for you. You got to go back to the scene of where the incident took place." Um, needless to say, this isn't exactly the response that uh, this woman, a victim, uh, was hoping for, and it's not a response that this woman, this victim, uh, should have gotten. Uh, Not any way 
any way, shape, or form uh, the way that uh, we expect uh, um, our folks to uh, address a victim. Uh, there is no requirement for someone who may have been victimized in uh, this kind of nature to go back to the scene. So there was some misinformation there, and needless to say, she didn't leave with a very good feeling about the, the way that, uh, that she, was, uh, she was treated and this situation was managed. Tefano pointed out the reason everyone was gathered at this press conference. Leah's YouTube video. You know, we all know the, the, the power of social media and just how big of a ripple effect that uh, can garner. And sure enough, it has garnered quite a, a ripple effect for good reason. Captain Melanie Peacock, the head of the sexual assault unit at the time, said when she heard about the video, she sent a detective to follow up with the victim. It's certainly regrettable that this young lady didn't receive the immediate customer service we would have liked, and we're certainly rectifying that. We're, we're handling that internally to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Peacock went on to say, Once this lady took to social media to put her uh, information out there, I immediately heard about it and assigned a detective to follow up with her. She didn't come back to us making a report. So we reached out to her because we value um, helping victims in any way that we can. Peacock says she regrets the customer service Leah received that day when she tried to file a police report. Peacock also makes a point of saying CMPD reached out to her to follow up. But if there hadn't been a YouTube video, would there have been a follow up? It's messed up that it took a YouTube video for this to happen. And if I hadn't posted a YouTube video, I wouldn't have received this preferential treatment. And I know that there are you know, other victims that have been pushed away. And, you know, I also have to wonder about the fact that, you know, I'm a somewhat attractive white female, and I'm sure that doesn't hurt my story either. So I realized that I received preferential treatment and also, they were scared about the uh, bad PR. Publicity about a case does put the detective working it under the microscope, says Randy Hagler. He's the head of the NC chapter of the Fraternal Order of Police, an organization made up of police officers. He says victims have two choices. I think they can go to the media, and that may be quicker. It may make them feel better that they bring a little, they shed some light publicly on a detective or an officer's shortcomings. But I don't know that it, it makes them feel any better for, for everybody to know all of their business about what happened. I think that folks who feel like they have been shortchanged in the investigation and they don't feel like the detective is doing what or how they should be doing, if bring that to the chain of command's attention, I think it would be investigated. I believe the same results would occur. The social media and traditional media scrutiny of police in recent years has led to some changes that Lori Robinson thinks are positive. She's a professor of criminology, law, and society at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And she also served on President Obama's task force of 21st century policing. I think that people are more savvy now and more uh, willing to raise issues with police departments now. And I think that that's a good development. Uh, Now, I'm a strong supporter of law enforcement, but why I say it's a good development is that we need uh, communities and individual citizens to recognize that they are being served by police departments and there needs to be dialogue. It's important for citizens to be very vocal about what their expectations are. Leah wants CMPD to make some changes so something like this doesn't happen to anyone else. 
She says she hasn't received an apology from CMPD. They use familiar words like regrettable. And at this point, she's not really looking for an apology. No, I don't care about words. I only want action. So words are meaningless. If um, you want to know, like in your personal life, how someone feels about you, you see how they treat you, what their actions are, not what they say. CMPD said it has reviewed procedures with officers regarding what should happen when someone would like to file a police report. Leah filed a complaint with CMPD, which the department says it's still investigating. We reached out to Rooftop 210 for this story. The bar said while it believes there is no proof Leah was roofied, the establishment has looked at ways to improve their security system. The bar said it now has lids for the cups it uses. We decided to check it out. Reporter Alex Olgan and I went out to the bar around 5.30 on a Tuesday evening. Our drinks came with no lids. When I followed up asking if they provided them, the bartender told us, yes, you can have a lid if you request one. For Leah, reaching out to the public via social media got her some movement on her case. She did that because she felt powerless and like no one was listening. Linda would also make a public appeal for similar reasons, but in a very different way. Back after this quick break. I'm Sarah D'Elia. This is She Says. Hi, She Says listeners. We're still collecting your stories about sexual assault. We hope that you'll share your experience navigating the winding road with us by leaving a voicemail at 704-448-6511. We are also taking listener questions for our live public conversation event I was telling you about earlier. So if you have a question about the podcast or a question for law enforcement, give us a call and leave your question. It's the same number, 704-448-6511. Try to keep your message to 45 seconds or under. You don't have to leave your name, but if you do leave us a voicemail, know that it could be part of something featured on our website on another episode, possibly the radio, or during a live public conversation. For more information, visit wfae.org slash she says. And thanks. On the fourth floor of the Mecklenburg County Courthouse is Domestic Violence Court. It's where you'd go if you'd need something like a restraining order. When you walk in, it's very quiet. The seats, which look like church pews, are all facing the towering desk of the judge. The women sit on the left side of the courtroom, the men on the right. And this room on the fourth floor is Linda's next stop. She's attempting to get something called a 50C, a no-contact order. This type of order basically means that the person you're filing the order against cannot contact you. But it's not a criminal order. So if this person were to contact you, they wouldn't necessarily be arrested. Kim Dupuis with Brave Step, an advocacy group for sexual assault survivors in Charlotte, says she's supported and helped clients walk through this process of filing for a no-contact order. But it's not a perfect solution. A no contact order is a piece of paper. It's not an impenetrable force that's going to keep this person safe. And so, no, there are not enough resources out there. There are not enough things in place to protect survivors um, and really you know, support them and give them that power back. But it's something Linda can do. And right now, she feels so powerless. So she decides after his release that she'll go to court. She says he already knows her first and last name, so what does she have to lose? I was with Linda the day she went to court. We sat waiting for her name to be called by the judge. She's asked to come forward. 
You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so have you got Yes. All right, maybe see you. The judge begins. All right, ma'am, if you please state your name. Linda states her first and last name. He asks her how she knows the person she wants to take the order out against. I did not know him until um, um, uh, the night of uh, June 29, 2015, um, which he sexually assaulted me. And, In 2015? Uh, yes, sir. Yes, Your Honor. All right, so why are you filing the complaint against him now? What Linda wants to say in that moment is, Judge, how much time do you have? Instead, she starts to explain her story in front of the judge, in front of a room full of people waiting their turns for their cases to be heard. She starts to explain why she's here asking for this order. She's asking in so many words for the judge to help her get some control over her life back. Okay, um, the uh, investigation, uh, because he was a stranger to me, um, uh, took, took quite a while, about 990-some days. Um, he was uh, arrested. So this incident uh, that happened in 2000, that was not a date? At first, Linda is a little confused by this question. Then quickly she says, Oh, no, I had no idea who this person was at all. Um, the only information, uh, the way that eventually I was able to identify is um, when he assaulted me, he had a, um, his work shirt on. He had a patch on, on uh, his right chest that had his last name. And on the left side... The judge takes a minute and then... All right, ma'am, have a seat back there and the clerk will bring you a copy of the order in just a few minutes. I'll admit I was a little confused at this moment. It was a little unclear if the order had been granted or not. Okay. Does that, that mean that yes. it's granted? Oh, I'll tell you when I'm not going to grant your request. I'm, I'm sorry? I will, I will announce if I'm not going to grant your oh, request. Oh, yes. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. 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 And so if he you won't need... be able to contact you. Or he'll be ordered not to contact you. Okay, correct. The order was granted, but nothing worth doing is ever easy. Next, the man Linda believes to be her attacker will have to be served. Then, Linda will have to return to court to make her case one more time as to why she wants this new contact order. Only now, she'll have to make her case in front of him. The last time she saw him, she was in the very back of the courtroom. And he was wearing an orange jumpsuit because he was in custody. This next meeting, They'll be feet apart. Next time on She Says, what we haven't told you. She Says is written, produced, and reported by me, Sarah D'Elia. Our editor is Greg Collard. Joni Deutsch is our producer. Alex Olgan is our reporter. Music is provided by Pachyder Music Lab. Keep the conversation going on Twitter using the hashtag WFAE She Says. You can tweet at me directly at Sarah WFAE. That's Sarah with an H. If you want next week's episode in your feed as soon as it comes out, Make sure to subscribe to She Says on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find podcasts. You can find out more information about the podcast at wfae.org slash she says. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi there. Um... Yeah, my first encounter with sex was actually a rape uh, by a female.
and I never actually came to tell anybody about it because of the upbringing that I had, and I was afraid to bring shame upon my family. And I hear a lot of people talking about sexual assault from a guy. Just wanted to say that it can happen same gender too. So um, hopefully other people get justice. Thanks.